Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmurz Day, July 27th, 2020. Happy birthday to my twin sister, Linda. On the show today, listener questions, and I visit the Magic Kingdom. And in our main segment, Jim continues the story of Disneyland's hyperhighway, which connects both sides of Disneyland to each other. Let's get started by bringing in the man who asks why Batman is one word, Iron Man is two words, and Spider-Man has a dash. It's Mr. Jim L. Jim, how's it going? Speaking of which, Glenn, were you aware that the dash in Spider-Man is actually made out of nutmeg? And it just, it's like a refreshing, <laughs> just, just a dash of nutmeg. I almost had a nutmeg joke today for our, uh, for our subscriber shout out, which is kind of funny that you mentioned it. Wow. Okay. Psychic Friends Network. Go ahead. <laughs> and speaking of that, let's do that shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Jim, 14 weeks in a row with a record number of Bandcamp subscribers. We are astonished, folks, at your support, especially all y'all who say hi while we're in the parks. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks to new subscribers, Meredith V, Brian E, Danny Lee, and <laughs> Ann B. And there's a rhyme uh, completely, you know, we've had, we have so many subscribers rhyming coincidences can happen. Okay. Also uh, longtime subscribers, Kelly with two L's and three E's, Michael L and Pamela eight, eight, one, two, Jim. These are the folks who bake the apple pies. You smell at Mickey's Philharmagic every 15 minutes, which is surprising because it usually takes 45 minutes to make an apple pie. Unless Pamela has secretly converted the new purple roof tiles on Cinderella Castle to solar reflectors that concentrate the power of the sun into a 5,000 degree beam of heat cutting across the middle of Fantasyland just above guests' heads. But that would be crazy, Jim. So, of course, that didn't happen. Also, Jim, did you notice that Disney's announced a new line of asbestos hats coming soon to Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Oh. <laughs> Again, I learned so much during this segment of the show. I cannot begin to tell you how my eyes have been opened to the, the real operation of, the, behind of, of how the park the actually works. There you go. By the way, one of the uh, we're trying to debate whether the new castle tile colors, the roof are, are purple or blue. And one of our listeners came up with the color purple. <laughs> which, which, why has purple not been used by Disney for all kinds of foodstuffs? To this point, I don't know, but somebody's listening, right? Get I on this. I was about to say that clearly no one's been to a Polish picnic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, purple sounds like a musical instrument. That's right. In, that's one, of right. The, in one of the Slovakias, right? There we go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, before, we, uh, before we do the news, Jim, uh, a special request to any cast members who work in the Magic Kingdom in Tomorrowland who might be listening. I need some high-res photos of parts of Carousel of Progress for a project I'm working on. Get in touch if you can help me with that. Jim, our friends at WDW Magic, note that the walkway between the Magic Kingdom and the Grand Floridian is getting much closer to completion. Have you seen this? I'm just now looking at the imagery, and I'm kind of intrigued given that they have all the NBA players behind their giant blue fence. Yep. Is this a good time necessarily to be completing a walkway to the Grand Flow? I, I think it'll be done around the time that the NBA is done. They still have some some work to do. For example, uh, I don't think all of the the lighting is in place. They've poured the concrete pedestals mm -hmm. for the light fixtures to go on, but the light fixtures don't seem to be installed. And I on the pedestals that I've seen that are empty, there's no electrical wiring in them yet. So they've, they've got a ways to go yet okay. on okay. it. But 
They have put the raised walkway in place. There's sort of this marshy area around the Magic Kingdom where I don't think you'd want guests. Drainage might be a problem. I don't know that you'd want guests walking around a uh, a concrete walkway that's parallel with the ground. So this one looks like it's raised up about uh, 12 to 18 inches off the ground, which is going to help, I think, with Mm -hmm. drainage. The other thing, too, frankly, is it keeps you a little bit higher than the wildlife. Uh, That can't be bad. Those are some interesting shots of the construction, though. Weird sort of way. It looks like they got stuff from Lego. <laughs> exactly. Well, whatever. It works. Mm. Yep. Did you notice? Uh, I think this is the first time we've actually seen the gate fully closed and operational. So we know what it looks like now. Interesting point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that's good. All right. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's coming along. And I think that – so it looks like that will be done by fall, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. And right. that will alleviate some crowd on the monorail, which is good for social distancing. It's also better for the environment. So win, win, win there for everyone. Hmm. In other news, Jeremy writes in to say that he got a survey regarding Hall of Presidents and Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor. So remember, on the last show, we had talked about these different surveys that Disney had sent out with pairs of attractions and different questions about how relevant the attraction is, how it makes you feel going in and so on. Uh, And we had speculated that Disney was using very popular attractions coupled with attractions that might need updating to figure out which ones to work on next. So this one is Hall of Presidents and Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor. And the reason why I bring this one up, Jim, is there's a rumor going around that Lin-Manuel Miranda is working on a concept for the replacement of Hall of Presidents. Have you heard about this? But have you heard who Lin is supposedly paired with to work on this? It's my dream duet, (laughs) Jim, of Lin-Manuel Miranda and... Weird Al Yankovic. Yes, yes. I have reached out to friends at Imagineering, and they actually referred me to the show that we did about Ward (laughs) Kimball being hired to do, get a affiliate for Epcot to the effect of, we do all sorts of stuff. We don't necessarily use everything. And it was just, it was a, a non-denial yeah. denial. You know, just sort of like, yeah, we've, we've heard that too. <laughs> Did they tell you there's this podcast you should listen, listen to? <laughs> well, there you <laughs> go. You know, but these guys who are occasionally right. <laughs> yeah, occasionally. <laughs> We've reached some sort of meta status at that point. <laughs> it's gotten a little strange. Disney's referring us back to the own show, to our shows. That's great. Disney's keeping Lynn very, very busy. He's working on that the live-action version of The Little Mermaid with Melissa McCarthy as Ursula. Likewise, he's working on a project for Walt Disney Feature Animation, by the way, which is set in Costa Rica, which supposedly, you know, that's kind of a big deal. You know, the folks at Imagineering are like, yes, that could help us with a certain theme park that needs more international areas. But yeah, supposedly this is in the pile there and there have been updates of Hall of Presidents previously planned that didn't go through. In fact, there was that really early proto version of Soaring with the idea that they pull all of the A figures out of Hall of Presidents and you would be, instead of in a rig hanging from above, the idea where the floor was supposed to move, you were supposed to be flying over great American landmarks like Mount Rushmore or the reflecting pool in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Oh, This was when all of the A A figures in Hall of Presidents were supposed to be sent to Virginia to then be put in President's Square at the Disney's America History Park. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and the narrator of this proposed flying over... Mel Gibson. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> close. You're very, you're very close. Bruce Willis. Oh, there you go. All right. So mid-90s. Mid-90s. There you go. All right. So 
I can see a, uh, a concept for Hall of Presidents focusing on sort of the founding Americans in general and getting mm-hmm. away from the political debate that happens now with Hall of Presidents. So that would totally make sense to me. No, totally. But my heart beats at, at the hope of some sort of accordion-driven musical riff. Did you read the, uh, did you read the New York Times uh, magazine profile of Weird Al? I think it was uh, in May or June of this year. That one got by me. I Charming. saw it. It, it yeah. in effect, it had that wonderful photo essay of him with dozens of people who look just who, like who him. look like him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but from kids ranging from like six to sixty. Yeah, yeah. He's immensely popular. It was great to you know, to see like his thought process, like how he does stuff. Apparently, mm-hmm. he's uh, he's very methodical in how he researches and writes songs. But the interesting thing to me is how much the dude works. And I think you and I have talked about on this show another performer, Huey Lewis, who works, I mean, until COVID, was working Mm -hmm. like 300 nights a year. Mm -hmm. And his point was, A, you know, I love doing this. B, this is an actual job, right? I mean, everyone thinks of musicians as all glorious, standing up on stage and everything and having a great time. But the music industry is a grind if you're going to make a living at it over, over the length of time that Huey Lewis has. Did you see where Lin-Manuel tweeted out how thrilled he was with Weird Al's tribute to Hamilton, where he, he did one of his his medleys of all of the songs from Hamilton, but again, on the accordion? On the know, accordion. Did, <laughs> I'm just saying. It's, we, we all know they're working on it. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Get a room, you two. There we go. All right, Jim, here's a, a listener question from Andy. And actually, it's more of a comment. He says uh, he's just listened to last week's Disney Dish podcast, and because we, we were talking about the dated merchandise with the year 2020 on it in the parks, and my my response was, "Who the hell's going to buy that?" <laughs> right? Like no one, no one wants to remember this year, right? And Andy points out that uh, he was uh, he and his wife Bonnie were at Vero Beach last weekend, and in the gift shop, they were already selling selected 2020 dated items. Uh, buy one get one free, <laughs> and this was the uh, the photo holders, the snow globes, the coffee mugs. And it looks like uh, uh, thermoses in the in the photo Andy sent us uh, of that. So Vero Beach, basically an outlet for 2020 stuff. <laughs> Not one of Disney's more compelling logos, but again, the idea was you know save your money. The 50th is coming. Exactly. So I can't wait to see that all at uh, uh, at the outlets. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's an email from uh, Joni, uh, and this is a question that we've, we've got variations of literally around the world from listeners. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll, well, let me set it up that way. Uh, so Jenny writes in and says, he's a big fan of the Disney News podcast and he looks forward to every new episode and uh, you and I both do a stellar job. Yay. Mm-hmm. Joni says he lives in Belgium and his wife and he and two young daughters go to Disneyland Paris quite often. And a bit before the reopening of Disneyland Paris was announced, they made reservations for a November stay. And since the parks have reopened, Disneyland Paris does a park reservation system, just like we do in the U.S. So Joni writes, to keep our Disneyland trips a bit more affordable, he has an Infinity Annual Pass, which is the highest tier, I guess comparable to our Premier Passes. And his wife and daughters have Discovery Annual Passes, which are the lowest tier. And the Discovery Pass has a few blockout dates, but those restrictions are lifted when you stay at a Disneyland Paris hotel. After making uh, bookings for November... He noticed that he couldn't reserve any days for the discovery passes that were outside of the 150 days included with the, uh, the standard pass. But since he's staying at a Disneyland Paris hotel, he figured, oh, you know, there's a different system 
for them and he could make the reservation. Turns out he can't. So even with a pass and a stay at a Disneyland Paris hotel, he can't make reservations for his wife and kids. So he said he emailed Disney to complain about the situation, but he has yet to receive any feedback on that. And of course, he's upset that you can have both an annual pass and a hotel stay mm-hmm. and still not be able to get into the parks. So Jim, the reason why I uh, bring up Joni's letter is that we've heard a lot of things like this around annual passes and refunds and things like that from tons of listeners, more than we could actually answer, more than we would have been, even have time to answer. But Disney's recently made changes to their park reservation system in the U.S. for annual pass holders, right? Yes, yes. In fact, you were, you were talking at length about it on our last show. Right. So, uh, so now, if essentially in the U.S. parks, if there's space available that isn't going to hotel guests and isn't going to guests with dated tickets, it's essentially released to annual pass holders. And I would expect that Disneyland Paris is going to do the same thing, Joni, relatively soon. Definitely in time for your trip in, in November. Mm-hmm. But the other thing in general, mm-hmm. I probably have a dozen emails in my inbox from mm-hmm. annual pass holders who are trying to figure out what kind of compensation they're getting for refunds. And, and, and compensation means a couple of things, right? Mm-hmm. One is compensation for dates not used. So mm-hmm. we, we all know that the parks were closed from mid-March to mid-July. There's some sort of compensation that goes in there. Other uh, people say that, you know, now that we can't park hop without reservations and you can't get reservations for multiple parks in one day, what's the value of park hopping? And the third part is, is for people who don't want to come down and quarantine for 14 days mm-hmm. before they use their passes. So if you're coming from a state where Florida is requiring you to quarantine, what do you, what do you do then? And, you know, can you get a refund? And the interesting thing is of the you know dozen emails that I have in my inbox, there are probably nine different responses from Disney in that. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that's frustrating people is there isn't a single place where you can go to get an answer, a consistent answer mm-hmm. to these kinds of questions. Do, do, are, is Disney working on anything like this? That's the frustrating thing. We all talk about the Walt Disney Company as you know, the, the, as if it was one big entity. Yeah, that's a, you know that that or it, as Aaron Adams always do the Marvel podcast with the <laughs> giant evil corporation. But the hard reality is you're talking about thirty plus individual companies, all of which have their own agendas, their own decision making structures, and that sort of thing. And and frankly, there is no uniformity at this point. I mean, you know, the, right. I'm sure what you're hearing from DVC folks is different from what you're hearing from folks with annual passes. Likewise, people who book vacation packages. I mean, everybody's coming up against a different thing. And to their credit, Disney has been hearing, because, you know, all of these complaints are going up the food chain. And this is also at a time when you must have seen the story just over the last 24 to 48 hours about the discounted admissions that are being offered to Florida locals to get bodies in the parks. Let's pause and talk about that for a second. So the three-day and four-day discounts are the same ones that Disney was running in December of 2019. And that was, I believe... At the four-day Florida resident ticket works out to be like $49 a day That's with tax, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Exactly the same discount that Disney was offering seven months ago. Okay, so mm-hmm. moderately interesting, but not new. The interesting and the new part of it mm-hmm. is the two-day discount. And the reason is, is a friend of mine who works on Wall Street asked me to investigate this. And as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. Disney has not offered a two-day discounted ticket to Florida residents 
as far back as I could find on the Wayback on the internet Wayback machine. Woof. Okay. And those tickets are roughly $65 a day and they're valid until September 30th. So if you look at all the possible two-day tickets you could buy because you know Disney's ticket prices vary depending on the days you're going. That $65 per day ticket works out to a discount of somewhere between 40 and just under 50% depending on the days you would have picked. And mm-hmm. Disney's never discounted a two-day ticket that much. That's yeah. the interesting part. No, I agree. I agree. But there's multiple agendas here. And the other thing that's handcuffing Disney right now is anybody who actually wants to come to Walt Disney World who, you know, who flies in, you know, mandatory 14-day quarantine. Yeah. To make this work right now, you're relying on, on the residents of the states of Florida. And yeah. that's a finite pool, believe it or not. I mean, it's 20 million people, but it's still not 370 million people like the rest of the United States. Yeah, that's it exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Disney is kind of making this up as they go along. Oh, totally. Yeah. And they're going to come up with a consistent policy I think, yeah. at some point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too is everyone's got you know basic questions about refunds, but everyone's question is slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. And the circumstance, and so I think that's that's sort of hindering. I think you know Disney's basically taking these as one offs mm-hmm. to see what they can uh, to see what they can do. But uh, but they should have an established policy soon. By the way, um, Jim, speaking of the uh, the discounts. And this is not a plug. Uh, mm-hmm. I just, uh, you know how I, I look at um, DVC reservations, points sales. So uh, people paying cash for DVC points through a variety of outlets, right? So we've, we've mentioned a bunch of them on the show. But I, uh, I looked at the newsletter yesterday from, again, not a plug, uh, dvcreservations.com. And they were, uh, they were offering the equivalent of $150 a night at Kadani for next week. What? Like last, last, yeah, last minute stuff. Uh, so uh, a studio... At Kadani, DVC mm-hmm. Studio Kadani, for the equivalent of one hundred and fifty dollars a night. Ooh. And I thought, like for me, anything under two hundred a night at a deluxe is a mm-hmm. good deal, right? It's sort yeah. of like my my benchmark. One fifty is is very good, yeah. and I'm I'm really interested to see like could it get down to like a hundred dollars a night? Because at a hundred dollars a night, I would probably do that, even though I live six minutes away, just for the experience. Remember that genuinely scary period after 9-11 when people just weren't flying. Now, mind you, this was within six months. They were pretty much back up to not normal occupancy. But there there was that, you know, that three-month window where thousands of hotel rooms on, on property were yeah. standing empty. And I just I wonder. Don't, I don't think they're at 25% capacity. I mean, just yeah. based on the number of people that are in the parks and the fact that there are reservations available for each park every day. Yeah. Given the number of slots that we know there are in the parks, I, I don't think they're at twenty. I don't. They, they might not be at twenty percent capacity wow. um, okay. for the hotels. By the way, I did hear a a thing from a friend. Uh, so Magic Kingdom opened up on July eleventh, mm-hmm. and we think that the maximum capacity, the maximum number of people that they're putting in the parks every day, is around mm-hmm. nine thousand, which is about ten percent mm-hmm. of the park capacity. So that's the maximum capacity. Uh, guess what it was earlier this week in terms of actual people in the park. Uh, six, four. Oh my god! Four thousand people in the Magic Kingdom. And by the way, I was there yesterday, and it was about six thousand people. And at six thousand people, it's not a walk on everywhere because people congregate in the in the more popular rides. But for at least for the first hour, the park is open. You can pretty much walk on anything. We'll talk about this more when I when I get to my uh to, to my to my walk arounds. Actually, you can't walk on everything because there are some rides that don't open right when the park opens. So if you're thinking about like getting there early and doing some stuff. I'll have some tips for you in a few minutes. I remember when President Trump at one point talked about how he could walk out on Fifth Avenue and shoot 
somebody and nobody would complain. You could fire a cannon down Main Street at certain point parts of the day and not hit anyone. <laughs> that's that's what I mean. You know, just sort yeah. of like have to sit there and wait for somebody to shoot. It's like, <laughs> come on, come on. Look, I don't be here any minute. I'm, I'm yep. kind of on a schedule here. Yeah, can, can you read this? <laughs> All right, Jim, here's another uh, listener email from Jennifer. And she writes in about her trip experience. She said, uh, my family really enjoyed our visit to Universal and Walt Disney World from July 3rd to July 15th as a whole. Both companies did a pretty good job with park and hotel operations. The cast members were friendly and enthusiastic as well as patient. And the parks looked clean and well-maintained. For Walt Disney World, we had a few hiccups, which I point out just because they were definitely a departure from what some had experienced. So she mentioned uh, that bag check at the Animal Kingdom was fantastic. But at the Magic Kingdom and Hollywood Studios... Both her and her partner had her bags still searched by hand, and her partner had to empty his whole bag during a rope drop because he was carrying a laptop for work emergencies. So uh, just to pause there real quick, Animal Kingdom has the new security process where you just sort of walk through. Jim, these Mm -hmm. are the new scanners that uh, Disney was testing out at Disney Springs back in June. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And I've done this, and it's phenomenal. You just Mm -hmm. walk through. It's a breeze. It's absolutely fantastic. Same thing at Epcot. They're, it's the, the new security processes. You just walk through. It's mm-hmm. very easy. But in Magic Kingdom, still the old process. And I think this is a scalability thing. I think mm-hmm. they're testing it at the other parks and then bringing oh, it over. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, Same yeah. thing at the studios. Um, the studios, they had built the uh, – remember, they had, they had completed the new security checkpoints before the shutdown. Yeah, it was a wonderful new complex, but again, built prior to COVID. So just the fact that they had to now retrofit everything that had been built to now deal with COVID, just sort of, Ah, And then uh, Jennifer goes on to write that uh, mask compliance was very good overall, um, but there were sometimes in lines, uh, particularly in It's a Small World, where groups of people uh, both in front and behind of us took their masks off for the entire queue and the entire ride. Cast members didn't mention anything to them. Also, Jennifer says she's not particularly confrontational, so they uh, just tried to keep their distance. So the good thing here, Jennifer, is I rode Small World yesterday, and although there was uh, nobody in the line, there are now cast member reminders everywhere to uh, tell you to keep your mask on even while you're in line. So they uh, they mentioned it to us as we were waiting to board our boats because we were the only two people, Christine and my sister and I, were the only two people in the queue. So as soon as we got down the ramp, there was a, a delay of a few minutes while they were getting the boats ready to board. And the cast member explained that to us and said, by the way, got to keep your masks on the entire mm-hmm. time you're in the line and on the boat. And that not only that, but when we got in line for Pirates, mm-hmm. for Splash, Big Thunder, and Pan, we got the exact same thing from cast members as we were walking in. So now they're, uh, so that's, this is something that they've done in the last few days, apparently. Okay. Okay. Jennifer concludes saying, uh, overall, it was great to be back. We're from San Antonio and felt guilty about traveling. But at some point, our mental health required getting away after so many canceled trips and cruises, including DCL to Italy and Greece. Oh, I feel you there, girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I really commend the cast members and everyone at both parks for all they're doing. And we'll be back in November for Wine and Dine, Race or No Race. And the reason why I mentioned that is uh, we heard yesterday that the Wine and Dine race has now gone virtual. So hmm. that, that email touched on a lot of things, didn't it? It did. It did. All right, here's a, uh, here's a note from Bill, mm-hmm. who says, uh, after hearing us discuss how Disney and many others are using plexiglass to make virus shields, I thought it'd be good to know what this has done to the plexiglass market. 
It's like, it's like the commodities report here, Jim. No, this is fascinating. Please continue. So Bill says, I work for an international plastics distributor. Before the virus, we usually stocked thousands of sheets of various thicknesses and sizes at the location I work out of. So this is for plexiglass. The manufacturers would keep stock so we could get more within two or three days. But back in March or April, the lead time shot up to 28 weeks. So more than half a year. So Bill says that if we wanted to order plexiglass now, it wouldn't be delivered until February of 2021. How crazy is that? Ooh, it's true okay. what they said in the in the graduate though, Jim. Plastics. Yep. Plastics. There we go. <laughs> those are great, uh, those are great letters. Also, Jim, I uh, I mentioned that I've been in the parks. So I went to Epcot this last Monday mm-hmm. at six o'clock. And I was there to eat all of the food that I didn't eat in my previous visit to Epcot. So this was a food and wine visit. I got there at six o'clock. Mm-hmm. It wasn't super crowded. First thing I did is hopped over to the land pavilion to see how they were doing characters at garden girl. Cause you know, they're bringing, they brought characters back to garden. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so what they're doing is the characters are maintaining social distancing by being on the inside of the turntable. So closest to the wall and waving <laughs> to people from a distance. Oh, I don't see how that could go wrong at all. It absolutely <laughs> doesn't look like Chip and Dale are in a firing squad, Jim. Absolutely. Oh. Definitely not the first thing that comes from. No, it's actually, it's actually absolutely fine. Super okay. cute. The characters are very energetic. I would say the Garden Girl was about a third full too, which was, I mean, given the circumstances and the the number of people that were in the land pavilion, which was like three at the mm-hmm. time, it wasn't bad at all. Yeah. Six o'clock, the land pavilion, I, you could literally count the number of people that were there. Okay. The other thing is now for food and wine, there are new signs that just came out this past week that remind you that you have to remain stationary while you're eating and drinking. So you can't walk around with your mask off eating food in World Showcase anymore. So remember, this was uh, this was something that's changed in the last week, I guess, again, based on, on guest feedback. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. I hear my mother's voice in my head, the better for your digestion. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. I will say getting there at six o'clock mm-hmm. is way better than getting to Epcot at 11 a.m. when it opens in terms mm-hmm. of like heat. Number one, the park was definitely not crowded at six o'clock. Six o'clock. Number two, it was it had started to cool down for the evening, and it made it much more pleasant. At eleven o'clock, you've still got some humidity in the air; it's still trying to burn off, and it was it was just miserable when Chris and I were first there. But we went at six o'clock this past Monday, much more pleasant. Also, not very crowded. I think the one downside, though, is at eleven o'clock, all the food in food and wine is freshly made. Mm-hmm. At six o'clock, some of it has been sitting under a heat lamp and the food quality might not be great at some of the less trafficked booths. So for example, I was at Citrus Blossom mm-hmm. where we tried the uh, the lobster tail with Meyer lemon mm-hmm. and the crispy citrus chicken with orange aioli and baby greens. So the lobster tail is 825 mm-hmm. and you know, it, it was actually a little rubbery. It wasn't great. For A25, I thought it was overpriced and and not of the kind of quality that you would expect. Also, the crispy citrus chicken was a little dry. Mm-hmm. And even at 575, I didn't think it was the only thing I didn't like of the evening. And I think both of those things had sat under a heat lamp maybe a little too long. That's the problem of this sort of event, particularly in these show kitchen setups where they, they prep yeah. things in your dance. It's to entice you. And just right. if there's no one there to entice, it does kind of wait for you. And I think the other thing that made those two things not good for heat lamps, obviously lobster can't sit up for very long. It just gets rubbery. 
and then chicken dries out. But mm-hmm. things that would probably work under a heat lamp are the two things I had at the Hawaii booth. Mm-hmm. So there's a Kahlua pork slider with sweet and sour uh, dull pineapple chutney and spicy mayonnaise. You couldn't tell if that's under a heat lamp because mm-hmm. the pork was so juicy. It was fantastic. And mm-hmm. the pineapple really goes well with pork. It was a little slice of Hawaii. It was delicious. 525. Mm-hmm. I would eat that all day long. But my, I think the bargain at the Hawaii booth mm-hmm. is the teriyaki glazed spam hash with potatoes, peppers, onions, and spicy mayo. It's a huge cardboard bowl of hash. Like definitely, it, 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 it's a meal for one person. $4.25. Wow. I, didn't, I didn't realize spam was that cheap. Did you? Well, it's spam. But it's ham. It's still a meat. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. If you go to Hawaii, they have master classes in how to prep spam over there. That, oh, yeah. I mean, it's in everything. It's in every meal. Yeah. But I thought both of those were delicious. Um, I would have, and we were sort of sampling our way around World Showcase, or I would have eaten all of it. But uh, if you make it to Food and Wine, go to the Hawaii booth any time of the day, both of those things. Uh, together, they're nine fifty, and there would be a nice appetizer and an entree anywhere else. And believe me, you cannot get an appetizer and an entree for $9.50 Not anywhere in Walt Disney World property, no. except for no. here. The uh, other couple of places that I ate, um, so I went back to the Impossible Burger place, the uh, mm-hmm. Earth Eats, mm-hmm. which uh, is hosted by the Impossible Company. So they do two things here. They do an Impossible Farmhouse Meatball with lentil bread, spinach, vegetables, and creamy herb dressing. Mm-hmm. It's all plant-based. This tastes a lot like the Kefta Kebabs at Docking Bay 7 at Hollywood Studios, which I think is one of the best counter-service meals on property. Mm-hmm. This is five seventy-five, utterly delicious any time of the day. Again, one of those things that can't dry out because of how they do the herb dressing with the vegetables. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is they're doing a, an impossible burger slider with wasabi cream and spicy Asian slaw on a sesame seed bun. And this was perfect. Like the sesame seed bun by itself was delicious. And the impossible burger tasted great. The wasabi cream goes really well with, uh, with it. If you, it's one of those things where if you wouldn't have told me this was plant-based, I would have said this is a really well-done like a, a, a well-prepared um, hamburger. That's great. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the particular flavor combinations that they picked here go really well with the impossible plant-based meats. There are some instances where like if you just cooked an impossible burger and you served it, you could tell it it's not exactly meat, but there are ways that you can disguise that, mm-hmm. right? With different flavorings. And I think the flavor combinations they've picked here, sort of a Moroccan flavors for the, uh, the meatball with the lentil bread and then the wasabi cream, the Asian spices, both of those work really well with Impossible Meats. So the other two things uh, we, uh, we tried, we went over to um, the festival showplace between UK and Canada. And I dipped in there for a couple of reasons. One, I heard the mac and cheese mm-hmm. booth was really good. And there's nothing after nothing you want after two pork sliders, some lobster, some chicken, uh, and then a burger and a slider. But mac and cheese, Jim. <laughs> and a nap. The oh, nap is unsafe, I, right? <laughs> I slept well that night. So I tried, okay. I tried in the interest of science, mm-hmm. listeners, I tried three different macaroni and cheeses. So they have the base macaroni and cheese, which is with uh, garlic and herbs topped with herbed panko and then toasted. $4.50, a humongous amount of macaroni and cheese. You could easily split it. This was delicious. So I didn't realize how garlic and herb cheese how well it goes with mac and cheese, but this is my new base hmm. mac and cheese. None of this cheddar or Velveeta <laughs> stuff for me. 
from now on, Jim, this is what the house macaroni and cheese is going to be at my house. Okay. Amazing. The other one that worked really well was the buffalo chicken mac and cheese. And the reason why that worked, so it came with carrots and celery mm-hmm. and also blue cheese, but it was just enough blue cheese mm-hmm. that you didn't, like blue cheese can overpower everything, but this was mm-hmm. delicious. The carrots and celery provided some crunch. Buffalo chicken was spicy. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the macaroni and cheese was creamy. And then you got a little bit of a, a, a tanginess from the blue cheese. This was five fifty, so it's a dollar more than the base mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. Entirely worth it. And by the way, these were all sitting underneath a heat lamp when I got them, but they mm-hmm. were perfectly cooked. So whoever's, whoever's over at the mac and cheese booth knows what they're doing. The third one I tried was the lobster mac and cheese, which is basically the same as the uh, the base, but mm-hmm. with lobster macaroni. This one I actually didn't like as much. The uh, The lobster was a little uh, fishy for me, mm-hmm. so I didn't like it as much. And that's, again, lobster is kind of like, it, it's lobster season right now, so I understand why people are doing it. Mm-hmm. It's the one thing that didn't, didn't work for me at this booth, but the first two were great. And it turns out the first two were actually cheaper than the lobster mac and cheese. So go with that. So if you're, if you knew, and the other thing too is the festival showplace thing is huge mm-hmm. on the inside. It's also got some really good air conditioning. Especially after a somewhat brutal day of walking around the world showcase that they, oh. you know, just to be out in the shade and in that air conditioning would be amazing. Yeah. Like it's dark. It's well, uh, it's, it's got great air conditioning. They serve mac and cheese. If they had hammocks there for rent by the I hour. Was, I was about to, again, the nap thing. It just How are we silly. not napping here? Yeah, That's totally. Right. The, uh, the last thing that we tried was over mm. at the desserts and champagne booth. And we tried the liquid nitrogen chocolate cake pops. So they have uh, three different version of, versions of them. All of them, all of them are $4. There's the mm. base one where they, uh, they take a piece of chocolate cake. That's about the size of my palm, mm. like the size of my hand. Okay. And they stick a, a stick in it and they dip it in uh, chocolate and then dip everything in liquid nitrogen to freeze it, which, you know, that like magic. I'm so hungry right now, by the way, Jim. you know, the, the magic shell coating that you, you can get on, on ice cream. Mm-hmm. Imagine yep. that. But with like Bill Nye meets uh, mm-hmm. Bill Nye brings over his liquid nitrogen kit and freezes okay. it for you. It is amazing. I, I will say you've got to eat it as soon as it comes out. Mm-hmm. of the liquid nitrogen because at that point the shell is still crunchy mm-hmm. the chocolate shell if you let it go for like three or four minutes like we did because we were taking photos of it it just reverts to uh sort of cool or cold chocolate coating it's not mm-hmm. as good as if you eat it right off the thing um also with crushed m&ms is the best it's still only four four dollars so you get mm-hmm. some free m&ms there mm-hmm. but the uh the crushed m&ms combined with the liquid nitrogen shell provide a crunch that mm-hmm. goes along with the chocolatey smoothness of the cake. If it wasn't impolite to eat all three of these at once, I would have eaten three slices of cake dipped in chocolate, Jim. It's nice in the liquid nitro situation to have somebody who's experienced at doing this. Have you ever done one of these liquid nitrogen ice cream parlors <laughs> where you pick the flavor that you want mixed and they do it in front of you and it's just like, this is not... A situation where you want an amateur picking out flavors or prepping no, it. ingredients. So I, so I asked, there was nobody else in line. So I asked yep. the person dipping mm-hmm. uh, the stuff into the liquid nitro, okay, what else have you put in here? <laughs> and I, I got the, the, the first response was, well, I would never put anything other than K-pops in the liquid nitrogen. I'm like, okay, no, but seriously, I'm not recording this. Like, what, what have you done? And he's like, well, bananas. 
seemed to work really, really well. I'm like, and what else? So uh, he went through a variety of food, he or she went through a variety of foods that they've uh, they've tried in the liquid nitro. Some work, which worked better than, uh, than uh, carrots apparently shatter. Oh, well, when there you we go. Bring them out, so. Speaking of shatter, you know, how many people have lost caps, you know, or fillings? Because it's, you know, did you only keep it in the liquid nitrogen for what? Five seconds, ten seconds. Uh, you dip it, yeah. It's like yeah. it's like one, two, three, pull out. Yeah. Other than that, it's completely frozen. The other okay. cool thing is for those of you who are on social media, the smoke coming off of the or the evaporating uh, nitrogen that comes mm-hmm. coming off of these cake pops, mm-hmm. coupled with the crushed M and M's, is a really great photo op. <laughs> so you should totally do that. Okay. <laughs> also, uh, yesterday I went to the Magic Kingdom. I was uh, testing touring plans to see uh, how much time you save with two different starting attractions. So Christina and my sister started off at Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. I started off at It's a Small World, which mm-hmm. I'm sure our listeners are thinking, why on earth would you start there? And the reason is twofold. One, they clean the boats every two hours. So if the mm-hmm. park opens at nine, they're cleaning the boats at 11, one, three, and five before the park closes at seven. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, they clean every boat and cycle all of them through the ride empty. And so it's like a 12 or 14 minute ride plus mm-hmm. the 12 or 14, uh, the 20 minutes it takes to cycle, to clean the boats themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. So whenever they do this, it's, it's a really long delay mm-hmm. in getting on the ride. So I thought I would be clever and go to small world first and get it done. Right. Thereby avoiding a, you know, 30, potentially 30 minute wait mm-hmm. later on in the day. It turns out Jim, that the parks official opening time was nine they let us in at like 8.35 into the park. But it turns out not every ride is open when the park opens. So Seven Doors, because it's popular, opens as soon as they let the first guest in. You can walk on the ride and get on a train. Same thing is true at Big Thunder. Same thing is true at Space Mountain. Basically, all the popular rides. Well, it turns out Small World isn't one of those popular rides. Mm-hmm. And they said that they, even though we got there super early, we got there at 9.40 after we walked from the entrance, that and I stopped off for Starbucks too. That they won't start running the ride until ten minutes before official park opening. So we sat there for ten minutes, and in that ten minutes, Christina had gone on Seven Doors Mine Train, gotten through the ride, got mm-hmm. off it, walked to Peter Pan, got on that, and rode it even before I was on the boat. Wow! For it's a small world. So touring tip: don't go to it's a small world first because mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't open as early as the headliner. So any secondary attraction is not going to open in the same way as the other attractions. And that's such a people eater or used to be. I mean, I, that uh. like why there's literally and in, in during the entire time that we were there, we were the only two people on the ride. So people were only just walking in when mm. we were getting off of the boat. So I'm like, well, what did, what did we actually do here other than just make things, make me wait for 10 minutes? Like what, mm. what thing did we solve? Yeah, whatever. Mm. That's fine. The good news is I did see more beverage carts open mm-hmm. and I saw cast members walking along the barrel bridges at Tom Sawyer Island. So mm-hmm. I don't think it was open yesterday to guests. Mm-hmm. I've seen guests on there occasionally during the day, but that schedule is still a mystery. Okay. To me. So we'll see. You've been in the kingdom a number of times. So especially, you know, you were describing that area between Peter Pan and small. And remember that the time and the effort Disney put into building the tangled restroom area to alleviate the stroller parking. In fact, you know, they even reversed the entrance and the exit of the small world to try to alleviate it. Oh, that. they moved it again. That's a good point. <laughs> they, they, they moved it about 20 feet to the right. <laughs> uh, 
God. So what is it like to be back in that space with like, instead of the hundreds of strollers that used to be parked there, to be back there with, with a handful? What is it like to be in the wide open plane at this point? It's actually great. The walkways are, are much more open. You don't even think of the strollers until you, you actually see them. And the only place we, we've really encountered a bunch of strollers was mm. over at the Animal Kingdom in Kilimanjaro Safaris. And only because we, you walk past them on the way to the Gorilla Falls Exploration Trail. Mm-hmm. So that's the only place we really, really saw them. But yeah, we, if, in fact, Laurel was with us for a little bit of the day yesterday mm-hmm. and in, in the beginning. And so she, she and I were on a uh, small world together. And that was one of the things that we noticed that was like, it's way more pleasant to walk through Fantasyland now. And you yeah. don't realize how big it is yeah. with are. all that space freed up from strollers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was really interesting. So the, we added a few rides to the touring plane yesterday mm-hmm. because uh, so we ended up doing 20, 20 different steps. Because there was there was so much time left in the day, um, we did uh, Barnstormer and Dumbo. We dropped Liberty Bell Riverboat because nobody wants to be on that mm-hmm. in the middle of the day, and it's also super inconvenient because that only departs on the hour and a half hour. So we were substituting things. So so far, the only things I haven't been on the Magic Kingdom once mm-hmm. since it reopened. I haven't been on Prince Charming Regal Carousel, mm-hmm. and I haven't been on Mad Tea Party. And Prince Charming Regal, Regal Carousel is really just because. It's just a carousel. But Mad Tea Party I haven't been on because you have to touch the spinning wheel. I was I'm about to say. Still not, still not mm-hmm. convinced on that. Also, it makes me throw up, let's face it. Okay. Yeah, so that's it, though. Um, and I'll be, I'll be back in the parks this weekend. Uh, so if there's anything our listeners are, have questions about, guys, let me know in an email, and we will, uh, I'll try and research it as much as I can. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim is going to continue the story of Disneyland's hyperhighway, the way that the area around the parks were redesigned for easier access. We'll be right back. On the last show, we talked about how uh, the Disneyland East Esplanade project worked. It was so that we could connect different parts of the park together while DCA was being built, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This was built to accommodate the folks who were staying in the off-site hotels. And if we're being completely honest about Disneyland Park, it's the world's most famous regional theme park. The large bulk of the guests drive in for the day from 100 miles away. And as part of this changing Disneyland Park to the Disneyland Resort, Disneyland went to the Anaheim City Council and and basically said, look, we want this area around the park to be less Las Vegas. And, you know, ideally, you know, in fact, more of a garden district. And so this is why they agreed upon what eventually became known as the 1,100-acre Anaheim Resort area. And this was the general vicinity of Anaheim and Buena Park with the idea that there were so many people who, when they were coming off of the five, were using surface streets and were immediately confronted by this jumble of neon signs and almost a a carny atmosphere. And so what they did is to, A, make it that much easier for folks to get to Disneyland Park. They widened the streets. They did a lot of planting to sell the idea of the Garden District. And the other thing they did, they created a standardization in sign size. So the idea is that you could then look out on Harbor and Catella, and it was attractive now. It wasn't, and and more to the point, things weren't fighting for your attention. Disney had to live by the rules it rammed through. So, you know, in fact, it it was was so funny the other day, uh, there's a gentleman uh, on Twitter 
who is actually now selling miniature recreations of the old Disneyland marquee. That really? He, he's, been, okay. he's been making them home during COVID, and they're lovely. And I was looking at that, like, oh, yeah, the thing that got pulled down because of the standardized signage thing. In fact, when you came out of the park and you'd look in the distance and there was the Disneyland Hotel with its bright red sign looming in the background and how that went dark, because, again, that was all neon. And it's like, well, look, if everybody on Harbor and, and Catella is not using neon— Disneyland Hotel has to not use neon. So we're now talking about the day guests and making it as easy as possible for them to get to Disneyland Park. Because again, East Esplanade was all about the folks who were staying in the offsite hotels. Right. So Disney announces this expansion July 17th, 1996. And six months later, on December 31st, 1996, the Vacation Land Recreational Vehicle Park and the KOA Campground, which were actually just down the way from the Disneyland Hotel. They both close because this is where the massive parking structure that's going to have feeder ramps straight off of the five is going to be built. Wait, where was this? Picture West Avenue, or, or as it was known in the day, West Street. The street that the Disneyland Hotel is located on. If you are going to the north away from the hotel, where the parking structure, uh, the Mickey parking structure is located today on that 14-acre parcel, this was where the Disney Vacation Land uh, vehicle park, it was a, a campground that Jack Rather had actually built and opened in 1970, right next to the Disneyland Hotel, uh, was built. And then... KOA, the Campgrounds of America organization, built their campground just up the street right next door to it. So there was this whole area where if you wanted to drive down with your recreational vehicle or drive in with your pup tent, you could set it up and then hike over to Disneyland. And that's a really expensive piece of real estate for... <laughs> well, you know, you got to remember that it took a number of years for... The real estate around Disneyland to get is built up. There was enough in the mid-60s for Walt to get upset. And again, that's why we ended up in Orlando. But speaking of expensive real estate, which again is it's where they put this parking structure. Len, we're talking about a building that's six stories tall and longer than the Chrysler building is high. Chrysler Building, of course, being the best building in uh, in Manhattan. It's theater. You know, it's a lovely building. It's, you know, it's better you know. than the Empire State Building. I'm just saying. No, no you, and you're not wrong. Uh, <laughs> okay. okay, so uh, parking inside for ten thousand two hundred and forty two vehicles. When it was complete, it cost uh, one hundred eight million dollars to build. And took 20 months to complete. And why did it cost so much? Well, you got to remember, this is a parking structure being built in Southern California, earthquake country. So to make sure that Mickey and friends could stand up to sort of seismic surprises that the San Andreas Fault occasionally throws their way, this is not just one massive structure. It's actually, it's two. And in fact, if you remember, there's that open ramp right in the middle of the building. And then if you were being completely honest, the two giant pieces of the Mickey and friends parking structure are then subdivided into four separate pieces by seismic joints. So uh, okay. if an earthquake happens, force of the tremor is then dispersed among the eight separate buildings, you know, rather than one massive structure taking all of that energy. Oh, that's smart. So that works out to that that works out to be around ten thousand five hundred dollars per parking spot. Does it really? Okay. Yeah, 108 million divided by ten thousand two hundred give or take, ten ten thousand five hundred. And the reason why I'm I mentioned this is Laurel and I were having a conversation the last time we drove over to the Contemporary. We passed by 
the Magic Kingdom parking lot. Mm-hmm. And the question that we had was, given the valuable nature of the real estate that's directly across from the Polynesian or next mm-hmm. to the TTC, would mm-hmm. Disney ever consider building a parking garage for the Magic Kingdom? If you look at the original Walt Disney World showcase plan, when they were going to build that sort of concentric circle thing mm-hmm. full of international pavilions, and the fact that they built it in what was even today is the Magic Kingdom parking lot, that was considered the most valuable chunk of real estate in all of Walt Disney World because of its central location. And right, you know, that's how- what I'm saying. So, like, why do we really need that much parking? Parking lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, it's a, it's a different animal in Florida. You have yeah. what twenty seven thousand acres, whereas at at Disneyland, you know, in fact, that's the the thing that fascinated me the most about the whole uh, expansion of from Disneyland Park to Disneyland Resort is that you were effectively building a little city inside of a city. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which brings us to the other issue with, with the uh, Mickey and Friends parking structure. On the other side of the Disneyland Hotel is Walnut Street, and that's a residential neighborhood. Land. Right. In fact, a well-established are, residential neighborhood. That's it, exactly. And, and these are the folks who, they had to change the makeup of the shells that were fired over the park because, you know, the particles were drifting down and making the paint on the hood of their cars bubble up. Yep. So... You know, they're talking about building this six-story structure right up against a residential neighborhood. You know, so the effect of the Great Wall of China. Yeah. And so first they elaborately landscaped it. I mean, there there are if you, you go by the Walnut Street side of the, the parking structure, it, it, there are literally thousands of hanging plants. So it looks kind of like a, a green hillside. Then coupled with the notion of, okay, it's a residential neighborhood. We don't want noise pollution. We don't want, you know, light bleed. And so they spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars mitigating those issues. And I will say, I've walked this this area a bunch. Like when you're staying yep. at the Disneyland Hotel, if you want to go out for a run, mm-hmm. it's really convenient to sort of do that, do that loop. And- yep. Once you're west of Walnut Street, mm-hmm. you know if you're in that area around the uh, the Hermosa Village apartments and whatnot, yep. you're you're in a normal Southern California neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You don't know that you know one of the world's most popular theme parks is you know quarter of a mile to your right when you're running. So they do they do a great job on that. And and your point the uh, the landscaping is mm-hmm. kind of fantastic. Oh no no absolutely. on that side of the park, it's a really pleasant walk in. So sometimes mm-hmm. I'll stay uh, I'll stay north of Magic Way. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'll say north of uh, Ball mm-hmm. in that area there and walk down Walnut Street to get into the parks. And it's really nice, especially when all the flowers are in bloom and everything. Oh, no, they've, they've done a great job there. And they really committed to the Garden District thing. They planted over 4,000 eucalyptus and California pepper trees. And, and and mind you, they had all of that stuff in place by December of 99. So by the time the resort officially opens in January of 2001, they've had more than a full year for growth. And yeah. it, it really, I mean, they did, from a horticultural side of aesthetics, it looks great. But Disneyland parking lot closes January 21st, 1998. Mm-hmm. And the Mickey and Friends parking structure doesn't open until June of 2000. And during this period, while this construction is going on, Disney has to find parking for not only its cast members, the day guests, and also the 4,000 construction workers who were working on this. So, you know, you and I have talked in the past about the Fuji CG family farm, but, you know, the, the yep. strawberry fields. Corner of Harbor Cantella. <laughs> Again, the most expensive strawberries on the planet Earth. 
So it's 52.5 acres. And what they wanted to do is while they're doing all this work in the Disneyland parking lot, while they're making the Mickey's and Friends parking structure, we're going to park the cars over the strawberry field. Parking lot closes on January 21st, 1998. Disney doesn't actually close on the Fuji CG farm till August 16th of that same year, Len. So I'm sure there was a handshake deal before, but at the same time, what if during that seven months, this suddenly went south? All right. Where exactly was Disney going to park people? Remember what they were able to do is because they would start in one corner of the parking lot and gradually work out. They could still park people because again, the plan was we'll start parking people over at the Fuji CG farm in early 1999. But okay. So now- Disney buys the Fuji CG farm, August of, of 1998. The family harvests its last thing of strawberries and moves out. And as I said, you know, they weren't planning on getting busy with building the what is now the Toy Story parking lot till, you know, early 1999. But anybody who lives in Southern California will tell you about the Santa Ana winds. Oh, they're amazing. Yeah. Yes. All right. But they come in the fall. They're very strong. They're, they're very hot. And Disney has made the mistake of leaving these fields empty. (laughs) Please tell me there are sepia toned photographs. And people on wagons. That's right. <laughs> having, having everything blown on them. Like, Oh, it was terrible. It was the Dust Bowl revisited. And Dust so Bowl st- too. <laughs> we're trying out a new attraction here. It's called the Dust Bowl. We think we're going to sell many, many drinks after this. <laughs> and remember, this is during the time when Disney had just convinced all of the hotels around the, the park. And we're going to change your size. You're going to do a lot of planting. You're going to expand your sidewalks. And, and now everything is covered with dust. So Disney has to rush down and plant this field of winter wheat. Yeah, so like suddenly, what, grow, what grows fast? Kudzu, <laughs> kudzu everywhere. <laughs> yeah, so they get all this winter wheat plant and they leave it in place till they actually start working on the parking lot. To get back to the Mickey and Friends structure, again, as I mentioned, took 20 months to build. For the record, some concrete doesn't even cure in 20 months' time. In fact, oh, it, yeah. You know, if you've ever heard the stories about the Hoover Dam, how that was built back in the 30s, and there were still parts of that dam, the concrete is not cured yet. Oh yeah, concrete uh, takes takes an extremely long time. In fact, some some concrete never actually cures; it just yeah. you know continues to get hard. So, made up of a hundred and thirty thousand cubic yards of, of concrete, and the next time you're in this parking garage line, look down at the floor, you'll see swirls in the concrete on all six floors of this thing. They help your car with traction. There's over 8 million of them, and they were done by hand. 8 million swirls. Wax on, <laughs> wax off. <laughs> wax on. <laughs> I just, I want to picture the bicep of the guys, you know, the right? giant, you know, Hulk-sized right arm and this little withered T-Rex left arm. <laughs> and now, okay, Mickey and Friends, purpose-built structure, Imagineers felt with the construction of downtown Disney and Grand California Resort and Spa, and of course, California theme park, they needed the additional parking, and they were right. Which brings us now to the Pixar Pals parking structure. This costs... A hundred million dollars to build. Ground was broken for this, again, another six-story structure back in February of 2018 for providing room for additional 6,500 cars. Okay, Jim, I just just want to pause here and say the cost per car Mm -hmm. went up 50%. (laughs) 
How? It's 20 years later, coupled okay. with the fact that it was tough enough when you were building a, a little city within a city, but now, you know, you have to build this parking structure next to a parking structure that actually has to operate, which is next to a oh, hotel okay. where right, people are paying. So they're getting top. more boxed in. All right. Yeah, All right. very okay. much so. This opens in June 30th last year, a month after Star Wars Galaxy's Edge opens at Disneyland Park. Right. But it was built anticipating the record crowds that were going to drive on down to the Disneyland Resort to explore Black Spire Outpost. And yep. do you want to talk about the TEA report attendance-wise last week about what they said about Star Wars Galaxy Z did the Disneyland's attendance? We uh, we mentioned this in like two sentences on last week's show, but yeah. the uh, Themed Entertainment Association's estimates for Disneyland's crowds for 2019. Mm-hmm. And granted, it wasn't a full year that Galaxy's Edge was open, and there were a lot of things that happened in 2019. Yep. But they said that Disneyland got an annual bump of exactly 0% from the opening of Galaxy's Edge. And let me just say, Jim, yeah. you don't spend a billion dollars to get a 0% bump in attendance at one of the world's most popular theme parks. I mean, to put that in perspective, they could have built four $250 million rides and definitely got a bump in attendance off of that, right? For years, right? I mean, four $250 million rides, just four e-tickets. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's my question. No one got fired. No. For this. Or one person got fired for this. Mm-hmm. Right? But how? How does that happen? I know for a fact that there were hundreds of conversations about how they bobbled the, the launch of Disneyland. Yeah, the reservation system and the the scaring people off. And and yeah. we were, I mean, Tory Plans was, was definitely wrong with our initial mm-hmm. estimates of crowds. But yeah, yeah, it was but I think I think fundamentally mm-hmm. Disney did two things, two mm-hmm. two, maybe three mistakes. Let me let me go through them. One mm-hmm. They didn't base the land on any property that people knew and loved. Mm-hmm. That's a controversial decision that I think played into that. You're not wrong. Would you agree? No, no, no. I mean, you know. Uh, they didn't know. do Hoth. They didn't do mm-hmm. Tatooine. They didn't do, right? It's a new land that nobody knew anything about mm-hmm. that they, they couldn't leverage. The second thing was, and I mean, I will maintain this to my dying day. They mm-hmm. screwed up Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run because it's not the Millennium Falcon that we knew from the films. And there's absolutely no excuse mm. to do it that way. Because l- the way I look at it is they're admitting they spent, what, $1.2 billion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on the lands? Okay. How much more would it have cost mm-hmm. to build the gunner positions in the Millennium Falcon in the ride the way they looked at a film? Let's say it cost another $100 million for that gameplay. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Let's just say it's another $100 million. Great. That's 8.5% more yeah. on the ride. And the fact that Millennium Falcon opened first... Mm-hmm. And it was just sort of a, eh, it's okay, mm-hmm. right? I think that did not do anybody any favors. So the three things I think they did wrong, theming on the land mm-hmm. was not, or the, the basing the land on something that nobody knew, probably yeah. not a great idea. Two, not building Millennium Falcon the way that it should be. And then opening it first mm-hmm. did not lead to, to great word of mouth. But in-house at Disney, it's like, okay, we bobbled. The Anaheim launch of Star Wars Galaxy. Don't worry. 
summer of 2020. You know, we've got Avengers Campus, and that's built around IP that everybody knows. And, you know, and and our attraction star is Spider-Man, you know, one of, you know, the number one Marvel character that everybody knows. And and here we are. That park, we don't know when that's going to open now. And if our pal Bio Reconstruct sent along the, the imagery of the flyovers, and if you're looking at the how far behind schedule that project is right now. If the park opens this year, I, I think, yeah. to be honest, I'll be surprised if, you know, Avengers Campus is, is open by holiday 2020, more likely spring of 2021. And so uh, while we were recording, they just announced uh, closures through the third week of August. There yeah. We go. So, yeah. We'll see. And again, if you just think about it, then they deliberately built 6,500 new parking spots, a giant parking structure, because they were so convinced that they were going to need it, you know, that, that the demand for this was going to be that high. And I mean, eventually it will. I mean, the, yeah, the, the, it'll, yeah. it'll go to use. It will, it'll yeah. just be a few years longer than they, yeah. than they expect. And hopefully right. Avengers Campus, you know, when they get that done, that'll be a... I don't know. Um, no, no, no. That coupled with the super deluxe e-ticket, you know, that that's waiting in the wings. But again, who, who knows when that's going to get built now with the whole on that $900 million worth of construction. But yeah. So we've done the Disneyland Eastern East Esplanade. We've done the, the Mickey and Friends and the Pixar Pal parking structure. What we're going to do to wrap this all up on the next show is we're going to talk about downtown Disney and the lessons they learned from what they did in Orlando when they converted the shopping village to downtown Disney. And in turn, the lessons they learned in Anaheim that were then applied to Disney Springs, and in theory, will soon be applied to Anaheim's uh, version of Downtown Disney. So it's fantastic. Yeah, uh, and we'll also uh, talk uh, on next week's show. Uh, we'll do more stuff uh, from the parks too, because I'm testing touring plans constantly. Can't wait! Can't wait! All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. You'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplants.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be playing an all-electric version of Arlo Guthrie's classic album, Alice's Restaurant, on Saturday, August 8th, at the Summer Porch Series at Strawbale Winery in beautiful downtown Renner, South Dakota. Tickets are $5. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.